Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. You know how last week when we were talking about the trailer for Nine Queens, I brought up the fact that there are these uh, cases where uh, trailers, American trailers, cut for foreign language films. It's like 80% of them pretend they're not foreign 
you just have an English narrator and you never hear anybody talk. You just see a bunch of stuff happen, just like we saw last week. <laughs> right. And then eventually movie guy speaks up. <laughs> right, exactly. This week's trailer is a perfect example of the other 20% of the foreign language trailers because it's just all talking. It's all Spanish speaking and subtitles. Okay, so does it work better for you or worse? I don't think it's a, a it's a problem of whether the whether it's going to work whether the trailer as a whole is going to work better or worse. I I think it's a contextual thing. Um, this is really a kind of a character piece. This is definitely a, 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 a drama. It has some comedy and some some romance in it, but for the you know the crux of it really is a dramatic um, story. And I think that the trailer, because we're watching this trailer. Um, and hearing them talking and we're just getting, kind of getting a sense of the story through them, I, I, I think that it works in relation to what they're bringing to the table here. I mean, it's a talking movie, whereas Nine Queens, you do have a lot of action stuff happening. So I don't know. I'm not, I wonder if they could have cut a trailer for this without us hearing anybody talk. <laughs> well, and when you think about the audience too, like an audience that's going to go see a movie like this, whether it's in Spanish or English, whether they they understand the native language of the film or, or not, if they're going to sit and watch a movie like this, they're not going to be rewarded by a trailer that takes the whisper of, of you know, action of, I don't know, pots flying across the kitchen or something like, and, and turn it into a, a fake uh, you know, trailer. I, I just don't think it would work. I think the audience that, that is going to attend a film like this is going to be okay, you know, sitting back and reading the subtitles and getting the context of the film. And I think the trailer actually does a really nice job here. It paints a really sweet kind of compressed picture of the overall story. I'm not moved um, to, you know, th- that they give away many of the major plot points, you know, the the Alzheimer's and the heart attack and the, I mean, we, we see a lot of those things and I think the trailer does an admirable job of making me curious enough to see how all those pieces fit together uh, to want to watch the whole movie. It's a really nice journey. Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I, it's an interesting um, trailer in that it, it does give you that kind of abbreviated version of the story. You don't really get a sense that it's uh, Raphael's story, maybe, but you do get a sense of the. this is a journey about... Um, trying to help um, Raphael's father kind of, you know, have this marriage with Norma that he's always wanted in a church. And you get a sense of that in the Alzheimer's, and I think that works. The the heart attack is the one element that I thought, I was like almost surprised that it popped up at all because it was, they were doing such a good job of hiding it in mm-hmm. the trailer. And then when they do show a heart attack moment, if it's that moment in the restaurant where he fakes the heart attack, where he like grabs his chest and uh, but then they cut to him like in the hospital. I'm like, that's an interesting way to cut a couple scenes. Right, to, that was to, dirty to pool. make the heart attack. Right. <laughs> I was not crazy about how they did that because I think the actual you know the payoff of the heart attack in the in the movie was was a surprise enough. And and I didn't watch the. Tra- I should have. I should make a habit of this, Andy. For movies that we haven't seen, I feel like I should watch the trailer before I watch the movie, uh, because I watched the trailer afterward, and so it's that that's not not fair. But I feel like. Uh, that was that was almost a com- like a, a, a I don't know a nod and a wink 
uh, in the yeah. trailer that that was unearned. Well, it certainly hit at a point in the trailer where they're not emphasizing it. It's just a, a series of quick images of things happening that just it's it's kind of toward that last moment of the of the trailer. I guess you could say it's the trailer climax where it's building and you're getting a lot of quick cuts and and uh, it's it's just kind of intensifying the emotion in the hopes that you kind of get to the the title at the end and you go, ooh, I want to go see that one. Right, right. So well, and and who are we kidding? We're gonna see it for that hunky, hunky <laughs> Darim. Hola, papi. This is the next reel, everybody. My name is Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're continuing our series on the films of Argentinian actor Ricardo Darín with his work in the 2001 film Son of the Bride. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you are enjoying this show and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Slack, listen to the members-only weekend show, and get better chances of being a part of our Listener's Choice episodes. Just head over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. Andy, I this was a really sweet movie. I... I don't know that it was one. I'm I'm really tempted to say that this was a this was a great movie experience, but it right now I can just say it was a really really good movie experience for me. Um, I have some things that I'm I turned off the film and I was downright puzzled by, um, and and that things that just clearly didn't work. But overall, I think it asked some big questions in kind of a small package and. Uh, that through the talents of, uh, I would say, our sort of four principal actors, um, I, I think they do a really good job of of bringing those questions to light, and and they they kind of make you face um, uh, some some really tough things. I am I am one of those who's just and I'm I'm one of the few people who's terrified of Alzheimer's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like it's just it's one of those like it, it's one of those horrible uh, things that I I think about probably m- way too much. That's my that's one of my many anxieties. And this movie actually makes you look at Alzheimer's in a way that I think is a uh, it it's dare I say refreshing. And my goodness, if I didn't end the film with a smile. Yeah, it's uh, I really loved this movie. It it, um, it just hit me in all the right ways. I mean, there are a few things in it that I was like, okay, I'm not quite sure. Uh, that's working for me, but for the most part, it was just, it was spot on. I thought they did such a good job of capturing the honesty of these relationships and these people. And like you said, the way that they dealt with the Alzheimer's, it wasn't like an Alzheimer's movie. Like this is just, you know, a, a hard thing to deal with and everybody's dealing with it, the changes in their lives and all this. It's an element in the story and it's something that people have been dealing with for a while and they're kind of used to and it's got its ups and its downs and it can be frustrating and uh, even just like the way that that Raphael um, dealt with it with his daughter when he was bringing 
um, her over to see uh, her grandma and just kind of like re-explaining it. She's like, Dad, I know, I, I know. Yeah. Just a lot of this stuff. It's like people are, it's it's in this world that they are living and it it just becomes something that they work with. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I did too. You know, I, I think uh, there are too many stories. There are too many of these sort of gritty real life relationship stories where an older couple, um, you know, one member of the couple gets sick, uh, cancer, Alzheimer's, whatever. And, um, and so it becomes the story of a breakup. You know what I mean? Like it's a story of the relationship, the struggles of the relationship and and how far the relationship has has fallen, um, you know, because, um, you know, the couple couldn't stay together through uh, through the when the relationship got really hard, you know, the in sickness part. And uh, this story, I think, never makes you question the faith that that certainly Nino, the husband, has in the relationship. And and I found that immensely, immensely rewarding. Uh, it, was, it was the warm blanket of this film, that his entire mission was to give her something, even in her, uh, as, as her memories are being just ravaged by time and this disease, he wanted to give her something uh, that she's always wanted, and that's the wedding in a big church. And this was his crusade to do that. And you watch him become a more active partner in their relationship and a more uh, sort of vital human being as he starts planning this thing and as he starts facing the challenges of of the logistics of the wedding. And I think that that just... Uh, I could have watched just scene after scene of, of Nino, you know, figuring out how to plan a wedding. I, you know, I almost didn't need the rest of it, which was also great. But it was just really, uh, really satisfying. Yeah, I mean, all of the little bits and pieces. I mean, Nino, just watching him um, when he is proposing to her in that scene that we have midway through. I mean, that just spoke to me of the the honesty of the love that this couple had and that he would never let go despite the fact that his wife uh you know i mean it is a terrible disease alzheimer's and and she's kind of disappearing before his eyes but he doesn't see that he just sees this beauty that he's always loved and it was so touching and just watching him just even dealing with her um alzheimer idiosyncrasies as he's uh, kind of proposing to her, it was just so touching and sweet. I really loved watching all of those elements of him. And just, and, and there's a line, and I, I can't remember exactly um, how far it is toward the end, but it's somewhere close to the end, where I think it's where um, Raphael and, and Natty are sitting there talking, and he looks at his dad, and he's just like, gosh, he's just like, uh, you know, uh, Fred Astaire, he it's just so easy for him, or, or something like that. It's just it's a line where he's just talking about this love that his dad has, and it's just it's just there, and it's just it it's as as much um, a part of him as you know his name is. It's just it's just this ever present uh, part, and it's just uh, it was just a really touching expression of a way to kind of say that about him. 
Well, and that leads to, so, you know, as, as we start sort of checking off the relationships that are at work in this film, that leads obviously to the second kind of romantic relationship, which is Raphael and, and you know, his efforts to make sense of his romantic relationships is, you know, that with his ex-wife and that with Natty, uh, which is uh, his his current and uh, love interest. And they, you know, he's really struggling. And, and I think so much of that struggle is, uh, it's pretty easy to relate to and uh, that I think we're just in terms of this film as a reflection of kind of the marriage economy uh, around the world when you hit a certain age and you start having these sorts of challenges and wanting to feel like you need to drop out this is a story of his uh, Raphael's kind of midlife crisis as much as trying to figure out the rest of the pieces of his business Um, you know he is looking at his mother and father and trying to to figure out why they have it so good even in the face of such struggle and he has such struggle even in the face of other things that are going really well and uh that that conflict and that contrast uh, i think makes him a much more uh interesting character and and um, um of course because it's that hunky hunky ricardo darin he is um you know i'm just love watching everything he does on screen, but mm-hmm, it makes yeah. you know watching him struggle to to sort of grow up at middle age is um, it, it was really fun. Well, and and I wrote this note down that I thought it was interesting because he is largely kind of uh, an unlikable character yeah. uh, in the start of this, and I was like, gosh, he doesn't really have any save the cat moments. Um, but still, he's so endearing, and I was like, "Is it? It must be the power of Ricardo because he's." I think we're both like, oh, "This. Why have we not watched this actor before? He's really uh, yeah. just engrossing to watch." But then I'm like, "Well, you know what? They do have that really smart setup at the beginning of 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 um, uh, Rafael and his friend Juan Carlos as the uh, kind of the little Zorro pair." Um, and they're getting beat up by the bigger kids who are taking their ball and just being bullies. And then these two kind of adopt these this kind of, uh, you know, um, righting the wrongs sort of thing with uh, the Zorro thing and, and, and beating up, you know, throwing rocks at the bad guys and and popping their ball with a swash of their sword and everything and being rescued by their mom. And it was really cute. And it, I think it set up the whole beginning nicely and it kind of was a save the cat. You know, you get this sense of this was who he was as a kid. You know, he was this dreamer. He had, um, you know, he had friends that, you know, he was struggling because he had these, these bad guys out there who were uh, bullying him and stuff. But, you know, there was, there was friendship. There was this passion for life. There was this strength in family. There were a lot of these great elements. And then that fantastic cut that you get where you, you know, they kind of push in on, on the young uh, Raphael as, you know, his mom offers the boys some butter cookies. Um, You push it on the boy's eyes and then you cut. It's this hard cut to, um, uh, Ricardo Darin, and you're looking at him. His eyes are kind of baggy. He's smoking, so you got this smoke kind of wafting past them, and this this just dull sound of the TV in the background. It's like all of the life just <laughs> instantly gets sucked out of the movie, <laughs> and you're just like, this is where he is now. I was like, that was such a great cut. I loved it. And that's the that is the the sort of character. I, I don't know the the character payoff. Right? Is that um, you know, through the course of this movie, he has to figure out how to be you know, a 10 year old again. And um, he is crushed under the weight of 
familial responsibility, right? I mean, not not just in the relationships he struggled with his ex-wife and his daughter now and and the this, you know, new relationship that you know, she wants to settle down and he's not committing and, but also the restaurant. You can tell, I mean, he has uh, a lot of uh, responsibility and guilt about his feelings about the restaurant. He wants to love it. He wants it to have been as successful as it was clearly for his father and mother when they ran it. And now it's a it's a business that is kind of running away with with itself. He struggles with debt and creditors and uh, and it, all of these things have um, you know have caused him to forget that you know deep inside there is a little Zorro. And it's funny that you bring uh, Juan Carlos back uh, when he's older, you know, in the uh, grown-up part of the story. And it's kind of, that's that's an element of the story that I, I think I mostly enjoy. But there's an element uh, toward the end where he pops up like he's pretending to be the priest. And for me, that was the one moment where I'm like, uh, I feel like all of a sudden this is like Rowan Atkinson popping up in Four Weddings and a Funeral. And yes, that was more of a romantic comedy. This one feels much more of like a you know a drama with some elements of romance and comedy throughout. But that comedy seemed a little too much for me. But I do think I liked Juan Carlos for the most part. His 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 character in the film is kind of a peculiar addition. But I think. As I, as I kind of watched, I'm like, yeah, but you know, he kind of represents those elements that that Raphael had uh, as a kid and had since lost touch with. And so, I think for the most part, I kind of like him. Although it was it was kind of a strange little bit for for me. I'm I'm gratified that you're as noncommittal as you sound because this was this was a part I really struggled <laughs> with too. Um, and it, and probably it sounds like more than you did. I uh, I, I I felt like his introduction to the film was weak it was it was on a gag like he was trying to to play up his acting and he came in as a as an undercover uh, police officer and he was you know said there's a problem with your kitchen you know he's trying to 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 introduce this element of threat and then oh no it's really me but they haven't seen each other in so long that he doesn't even that Raphael barely even recognizes uh, Juan Carlos and then I, I think the strength of what Juan Carlos, the character, brings is, is he allows uh, Raphael to to get in touch with the, the the youthful part, right? And he also becomes another interesting role model. Their conversation as they're walking late one night, and he hears the story of Juan Carlos's, you know, as he lost his his family. Um, I struggled with whether or not I should believe that. Right, because everything else about Juan Carlos is is on the verge of a lie. Right, I mean he is he's an actor, but it turns out he's not, you know, a terribly successful actor. He's he comes in every time we see him, he's playing a role, he's doing something else, and so I, I wasn't sure whether to trust him. And then we get this incredibly powerful moment where he is he's talking about how he just woke up from grief and that ends up being an incredibly well-written scene it's a beautifully well-written sort of speech from him uh, where he gets to talk about how he was how what it was like to lose his family and then to wake up and and I was torn with whether or not I felt like it was uh, real or not but the thing that really pushed me over the edge to 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 sort of not liking Juan Carlos's role is when he became that weirdo kind of stalker and tried to tried to make a move on Natty. Um, I didn't I didn't understand that. It was like I felt like the film either wanted to have that conflict and didn't do it, didn't push it far enough, or 
they weren't committed enough to it and shouldn't have had it in there at all. That that Juan Carlos, we we had enough that Raphael was going for, uh, was going through, and and having Juan Carlos come in, an old friend, rebuilding a relationship and try to take his girl, too much. Well, and that was a, a question I think that uh, Ben Lott um, asked us over on Slack because, you know, I was thinking about that and it, it's interesting. Was he being honest when he said he loved her or was it another of his lies possibly designed to get Raphael to realize how much he actually values Natty? And that was an interesting, uh, it's an interesting question. And I, I think my take on Juan Carlos wasn't that there was so much um, like lies and, and you know, kind of disguising things and stuff like that. It was just, he was definitely just more of a goofy character. And I, I, I appreciated him. I guess what I thought of, of, of that scene when he, um, and it was a very funny scene, I will say, despite, despite anything, I just love the fact that he was a background actor in this whole thing. That was a, a <laughs> great highlight in this film. That was amazing. <laughs> And the timing was so perfect because the way he says it and then they're rolling and he just immediately jumps into his silent laughing. And it, well, and it, was, it, it was so perfectly timed. Yeah, I mean, it was really perfect. And if you haven't watched the film yet, it, please, please, please go watch it. And I'll put the link to the copy that the guy posted for Patty on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's great. Works great. It's a great version of the film. It'll um, get be- you through it. it. It will get you through it. I, and I think that that's an example where I, I think Eduardo Blanco, the uh, played Juan Carlos, really shines. Like, he really shines. But I couldn't shake the fact that he just felt, more often than not, like a preening, self-conscious pretender. And uh, somebody who huh. was not comfortable in the choices that he'd made. And so he had these stories uh, that he'd sort of built up around himself. And that didn't match the sensitive moments for me. That didn't match when I really wanted to believe him. It's like they set up uh, that that he was a character that was not believable. And see, that's interesting because I, I didn't see that at all. I saw it as this guy who was pretty much kind of honest about everything in his life where he had hit this point where, um, you know, some awful stuff had happened to him. He's like, you know what? I have nothing else to lose. I'm just going to be honest and straightforward about everything and I'm going to become an actor. And I think I think for me, like I, I kind of bought into everything he did. And so to that end, the whole bit with Natty, I kind of bought into it. And I think it was just one of those things where I, I don't know if he was just not thinking things through, perhaps, but I, I bought into him actually saying, you know what, I, I do kind of like her. I fell for her because you were you had a heart attack, you were out for this huge period of time, and she and I developed this relationship. I don't think she did at all, but I think he... Uh, he developed it, and I think he was just in this place, like I said, where he just was being honest about everything. And I th- don't think it was until afterward that he realized, mm, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Okay, this this is a question that comes from not having watched the film a thousand times. How long was he out, Raphael? Um, I gathered it was uh, at least a week or so. I okay, don't know. all right, me too. I but it, and so in to that end, I. <laughs> I did not believe that they would be able to build that kind of relationship, uh, Juan Carlos and Natty, that quickly. I mean, I guess well, maybe they could. Like, she was already kind of second-guessing things. And, I you know, we do have remember, that scene where he tells her, where Raphael tells her, I want to drop out and move to Mexico. And she, I think, misinterprets that. Well, he doesn't well, deliver and, it very well. Well, and I think that 
again, I think that uh, Juan Carlos is reading a lot more into the relationship and the time that the two of them spent in the hospital waiting for Raphael to kind of come to and get out of his whole, um, you know, kind of the whole heart attack situation. I felt like they developed this kind of kinship because they were both waiting for Raphael. But Juan Carlos, in his loss and his pain of his own life, um, saw something in Natty that he was missing and kind of uh, developed this relationship in his head that was stronger than she ever would have thought it was. Like, I think in her head, she only ever thought it was just a friendship that had developed because of their connection. That's so funny. I, I don't feel like the film communicated that to me. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just it's just a reading, so I yeah. mean, it's, it's hard to say. I, I'm curious now to rewatch it and kind of get a me too get a, a an interpretation again of, of yeah. uh, all of that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, it that's that's fascinating. Um, so that that is one of those relationships that I think really um, you know I struggled with was the relationships with Juan Carlos and I but I have to say Eduardo Blanco is so good like when he's on he is so funny I just wish the the puzzle piece of his character fit fit better um, yeah. another real highlight for me is uh, Natty played by N- Natalia Verbicki her relationships right we have her relationship with um, Raphael which is a struggle. Uh, we have her relationship, w- Natty's relationship with uh, um, Vicky, the daughter, uh, which is, uh, you know, I-, I think a highlight in terms of a step relationship. Like they they have such a really nice sort of loving demeanor. And, and so, you know, but I think she plays such the perfect foil for the audience to say, Raphael, you dumbass. Like she is amazing. <laughs> Go hang with her. She's perfect, and they treat her really well in the film. I mean, yeah. the, the writers do that moment that she's she has with him when she's kind of breaking it off with him, um, and it's it's so painful because he Raphael is so lost in himself that he doesn't think about what he's saying and stuff, and it's not until much later when he realizes and he says in this in that scene when they're talking he's just like you know when i was saying all that i didn't mean that we shouldn't be together and stuff <laughs> and it, you know it's just like you're you're an idiot dude because you just clearly aren't hearing yourself but the way that she takes all that it's just like you know what i i deserve more and and her her whole thing was just so uh you know kind of she was done she's just being true to herself and it was just a really nice moment between the two of them and i'm like but she was just so good. And she's like, you know what? You never played games. You were just not the man that I thought you were, uh, but I'm worth it. And, and you know, that's that. That was really just touching and powerful. And she brought it to the table there. And it was great. And then it, that made for such a great payoff when he shows up at her place um, in the rain after terrifying her. And thinking yeah. that he's a stalker. Um, but then that great shot of him as he's kind of confessing his undying love for her in the little uh, video monitor. That Just was wonderful. amazing. That was amazing because that little resolution, it, it, you know, you already brought up four weddings and a funeral. And and it really, it could have had the sort of saccharine nature of, you know, Notting Hill or 
something like that, right? I mean, it, it really could have gone that direction. Here he is. He's pleading his his case in the monitor, and the the guard, the door doorman, is sitting there, um, you know, weighing in. Right? He's like editorializing. <laughs> I think I think he really is serious. I think he's really hurting. yeah, right. <laughs> but but it's only then it's only toward the end that you realize she can't see him, and the camera has not cut away from this little phone screen the entire. Uh, monologue here and and so when she comes she you know when he he says you know I'm I I, no response no response and he kind of backs up and he puts his hand on his head and she not practically knocks him down the stairs but we don't see anything because it never cuts away from that screen Uh, I I wanted to shout like that was that was a great reward for that scene and then it's over then it's over they don't there's there's they don't cut back to more nonsense right yeah perfect no it's it's done so well that's something that i think um uh the director here uh juan jose campane Cam, i think it's campaneja i think is how you say it um I, he has a real strong sense of camera placement and where to put it and how to move it and when to let it sit and this was a great moment showing that and it just it was such a refreshing moment to see that scene play out like that because it was just uh, it was just it was touching and it was rewarding because of the way that he gave it to us such patience such patience uh did you feel uh midlife crisis-y after watching this, did this make you reflect on your own place in the world and uh, where you're where you're going? <laughs> you know, I I feel like uh, I feel like it didn't, but uh, that's okay <laughs> we'll because I, I I don't feel like I'm in quite the same situation. But something else that I was going to say though about him, and especially as this midlife crisis, that I thought was so interesting is this is a really interesting film as we were talking about relationships, looking at like the past and the present and the future. And I found it really interesting that in this particular film, well, in a lot of films you see like this, you see these people with these broken relationships and they there's that person that they kind of connect with and it's a new person that kind of helps them move forward, right? Mm-hmm. It's like that new romance. I loved that this film was about these two people who struggle with their, uh, well, it's really just Raphael struggling, but they end up with the women that they had been with from the beginning. Oh, I was yes. like, that was that was a really nice twist where it's like, you know, I mean, Nino, we know he's going to end up with her. It's just this nice moment to see him kind of rekindling that love. But Raphael, it's like, he, you know, he, he kind of has messes everything up with Natty and then fi- fixes it and ends up back with Natty. And I'm like, that was just so nice. I liked seeing all of this where it's like they return to their pasts and their presence to kind of help move their future forward. I was like, that's just, it was such a nice change. Well, and that's, uh, that's, you know, not to belabor Juan Carlos's role, but that's sort of what I, what I saw him as he was the ghost of Christmas past. Right. I mean, (laughs) he's like showing you where you were, but uh, interesting that, that you mentioned that, um, you know, the, the midlife crisis, we sort of pick up in Raphael's midlife crisis, I don't know, like toward the middle or end of it, like he's already with the younger woman, right? Like yeah, right, his right. relationship with the midlife crisis woman has is already on the ropes, right? We already know that he's a basket case with his ex-wife and the mother of his daughter, but he's trying to hold his life together after he already midlife crisis himself into this place. Now, right. to to that point, the fact that the resolution of the movie is such that that he is able to resolve 
his relationship with this woman, that that's the lesson that he learns and that that uh, uh, that there's a satisfying ending that doesn't introduce some new, um, you know, even younger, younger model. That would have been grody. It's really it's satisfying for a minute there. I was like, are, is he going to reconnect with his ex? And I wasn't quite sure if I was happy with that direction because he yeah. had that moment where he goes to visit her and he kind of grabs her like he, I mean, not grabs her, but he kind of puts his hands on her like, you know, she's his lover again. And uh, I was like, oh boy, this is, I don't know if I'm sure about this. But then her reaction was perfect. I'm like, oh, wait, okay, no, no. You know, I was misreading it, but really is because he was misreading everything and, you know, just kind of feeling that whole sense of loss and everything. I really liked that, that almost surprise twist that they had there. You found uh, a quote from our fair director talking about Nino and his own father. Uh, it's Well, I had read somewhere and I c- couldn't find it, but I, I thought I read that um, he partly based Nino on his uh, kind of his relationship with his father, which I thought was interesting. Um along with this quote, which uh, kind of emphasizes uh, his relationship with his mother, too. Mm. I am very obsessed with old age. I was looking for a word, intrigued. No, it's more than that, because I'm afraid of it. I'm very afraid of it, and I really think that it's so unfair. Perhaps I've been trained by my mother, who hated to grow old and decided to get Alzheimer's so she could avoid it. At least that's my theory. She couldn't bring herself to, of course, harm herself, but she was not having a good time. Also, when you get to the age where you see your parents, when you see your parents age, it's not an easy thing. And I'm really obsessed, too, in the sense that I like to have old people have a good time, as good as it possibly can get in the circumstances. I thought that was kind of an interesting quote about, you know, just, you know, what he sees in age and this this fear of aging. And uh, but also there's this great potential joy that you can still have when you're aging. And I think you see that in both the parents that we have here, Nino and Norma. Let's do the deep scene dive, Andy. Let's do it. Uh, We're about uh, 57 minutes into the film. Uh, The restaurant is busy. Nino is on the phone uh, in the back. He is uh, trying to invite people to his coming wedding. Raphael is demonstrating, it starts, he's demonstrating the way they cook a particular pasta in a giant cheese log, which is amazing. I know, uh, I sure wanted that. Wow. <laughs> uh, and, and he's doing this for the group of sort of the the buyers, the attorneys and the buyers, the people who are going to buy his restaurant. There is absolute chaos in the kitchen. And, um, uh, oh, you have it starting at about a minute in. A An minute hour. to, or I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm thinking honestly. I'm thinking about pasta right now, <laughs> Sorry. and that's throwing throwing me off. Uh, it Jeez starts at about an, an hour uh, in, runs from an hour to about an hour to uh, hour two thirty. Um, so, uh, what do you? Why is this scene? This was funny because we when we choose these deep scene dives, we kind of throw out our favorite scenes, and this was the one that you and I had in common on our lists. Why was this one on your list? I felt like this was, uh, I mean, this is right after uh, Nino proposes to Norma, and we get that that really touching scene, and and this is kind of setting the wheels in motion, right? We got this this deal now. We already had uh, Raphael t- uh, have a heart attack and and tell his dad that he didn't want to do this restaurant anymore, and so all the wheels are in motion. He's trying to sell the restaurant, and his dad is trying to get the wedding organized. 
And so this is just kind of this, this, this big moment where it's like everybody's doing everything all in this restaurant. You've got Raphael. He's, he's prepping this, this great meal that you talked about for these buyers and kind of talking to them about it. You have Nino on the phone, uh, talking to a variety of people about, um, uh, you know, just inviting them to the wedding. And it's, it's an interesting blend I felt of kind of, pushing the story forward, but also allowing for quite a bit of comedy because you have Raphael's bit of the story is really more focused on on driving things forward. And Nino and his phone calls are really just kind of uh, comedy as to how out of touch he is. So it's a really interesting blend. And then paired with the way that the camera was uh, dancing around and stuff, it, it just made for kind of a really interesting scene, I felt. Uh, really, and and you know, you say the camera was dancing around. It really was, and it was not. I, I th- this wasn't a single shot, but there were some really long shots in here, right? Where you have just some great timing uh, of you know Raphael walking, you know, out of the scene, and the camera here is it pulls back, and it's already on Nino, and Nino is asking, you know, can he come to the thing? Uh, is he alive? You know, he's finding that all these people that he knew for years and years ago uh, are either in, I guess, in hospitals, in prison or dead and uh that that ends up being sort of a deflating element that comedy is just fantastic and it ends on uh something has gone on in the kitchen with uh marchioli the chef and nacho the moron uh and somebody has dropped something and there's a third degree burn uh or, or something or you're not i'm not quite sure <laughs> How it how it played out, but all this is going on, uh, you know, backstage while he's trying to hold together the front of house, and his father is completely oblivious. It is it is perfect, and it's kind of an isolated scene, and it's perfectly placed right in the middle of the film. That it's this this sort of comic high point uh, that that breaks up the the sort of heavier questions. And it's structured interestingly because it really is kind of like the first half of it gives us the setup for it, where we really see. Uh, you know, it sets us up with with seeing Nino on the phone, and we get that. And then we kind of join Raphael as he's having this conversation and showing these these um, these uh, restaurant buyers this recipe and talking to them and talking with the chef. That becomes like this really heavy cutting, like back and forth, cut, 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 as we're cut from Raphael to the buyer to the chef to the buyer to the chef as, as they really have this conversation. Mm-hmm. That's like just straightforward, uh, regular old filmmaking. Um, and, and so it's, it, it, and it fits because that is kind of part of the story that is just pushing us into the next chapter for that element of the story where we see him really kind of selling this restaurant. Um, but then you get into that dance that you were talking about, which is just, it's so nicely done where as we wrap up with Raphael, um, it's almost like he steps out of frame and then the camera goes right there to Nino who happens to be right behind him. And it felt very much like a play, you know, because a play, it's one of those moments where you have multiple people doing things on screen and, you know, the the light changes and all of a sudden this other person's the, the point of focus. And uh, the other person's still there, kind of, you know, not quite as as bright anymore, but they're still kind of doing their thing on the phone, but you're now following Raphael and then that light dims and then you're on, on Nino again. And it's just, it's fun the way that they do that. And it felt very much like a play. Um, but you're right. That shot lasts for almost the, the full minute that uh, toward the end of the the shot. It's like there's the way they edit it. There's like 18 shots in this whole two and a half minute chunk that we're looking at here. And um, the last two shots, it really is um, almost like the last half of it. 
Uh, it just and then you just it you just happen to cut away um, to one final um, uh, hit of Nino as he's on that final phone call and he's just like, just tell me, is he alive? And it was <laughs> it's a great little comedy hit that we end with. But there's a weird cut like right before it. And I was like wondering, I'm like, I wonder if they just cut because they just needed to get a better take of that or what. But um, all in all, it just was a really intriguing scene that that did both its job of pushing the story forward as far as selling the um, selling the restaurant and then the comedy of inviting the guests because that doesn't that's like neither here nor there as far as the uh, the momentum of getting us to the wedding. It's just kind of a fun thing of him making these phone calls. You know, it, it didn't right. have to happen. It's really there just purely for the comedy. And so I felt like that the uh, the writers Juan Jose Campanella and uh, Fernando Castets um, did a really good job of finding the balance in here and then directing and editing and getting all the actors to do the job. Here's another thing that I think they did really well is they brought in Marchioli, the chef, to to be introduced to the buyers. And there is such a feeling of great exuberance and, and excitement and enthusiasm about the whole thing, right? He's here, he's, he's telling them that he's pure Italian uh, from, you know, he's, he's straight up from, from Southern. He's Southern Italian, you know, Southern Buenos Aires. Uh, right. And, and <laughs> And I just I love that moment. It's so fantastic. And you're kind of on cloud nine for them because it feels like now that Raphael has come to terms with the fact that he's selling the restaurant and he and his father have had the conversation. They're selling the restaurant. Sell the restaurant. He says, you don't you don't need this. Sell the restaurant. He sells the restaurant. And we find out uh, not too far after this scene, after this real high that selling the restaurant was the right decision, that in fact, everybody's going to be fired and that the the chef in fact uh is is say, it says he, he sort of preempts it he says you know if you're gone i'm gone and and that ends up being a uh, i for me that hit me as a, a a point of great sadness that that you know just when you think he's got his his stuff together um he ends up letting everybody down who had jobs in a struggling economy and you know here he is just looking selfish again that was a really uh, kind of an interesting moment to see because that you definitely had developed this um, loose kind of relationship with some of the people in the restaurant. And then that moment hits when, well, one, in this scene, when we find out that these guys who are buying the place are like, they're going to make an offer on Thursday. And yeah. he's just like, oh, that that quick? Like, he's just so not prepared for all of this. He, he's just kind of in this place after his heart attack where he's just like, I, I just got to make these decisions and move forward without realizing that, you know, the ball is rolling much faster outside of his little world, right? Exactly. And and you get to that later scene where he's uh, at that table and he he learns that everybody is uh, everybody else is pretty much going to be let go right away. And it is. It really is heartbreaking because you have gotten to know these people and as 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 kind of annoying as as Nacho is, there's something endearing about him, and uh, so it's it is it, it it's it's nicely done how it sets up this world for you, and you feel uh, just as much like you know the the rugs pulled out under your feet as as it has been under uh, Raphael's. Uh, much of the credit to how this thing is pulled together after the script and direction goes to, as you already mentioned, Daniel Schulman, the, the uh, uh, behind the camera, and Camilo Antolini uh, for editing. Uh, once again, a, a terrific pair. 
It, they do a great job here. Um, I think throughout the uh, the cinematography uh, just works really nicely. It's I, I like seeing how Campanesia uh, really works with his his camera throughout. Um, the, at least the few films that I've seen of his, yeah. uh, really nice stuff. Uh, you want to talk more detail about uh, him now? We want to jump out of this. Or do you have more to say about the um, deep scene dive? You know, I will say one moment uh, or one thing uh, as far as the music goes. Angel Yaramendi, uh, Ijaramendi. Um, the music in here throughout the film, I, it was is a nice tone. Like there's like kind of marching stuff. There's some moments that feel very dreamy and elegiac and romantic overall i liked it but in this sequence i just i i found it so funny because as i went back and rewatched it and just kind of focused on the different elements the music it it is kind of just this diegetic music like something that would be playing in the background in an yeah. italian restaurant but all i could think of was the cheese sketch in monty python that monty <laughs> python does with the, that uh, shut that bloody bazooki off you know it just it sounds like that kind of annoying <laughs> music that you'd have in the background that if it just t- it turns up another another notch, you're like, oh, I can't stand this anymore. You know, there were some weird pairings of music to scene, like the the opening scene where the bullies are beating up on the kids, right? That that's played to a patriotic march, you know, right. which was very strange. This scene, it's like there is some sort of calliope or balalaika or something going on in the background that that really is just comical. These, I I don't know. I, I don't know how intentional that was. Some of it seemed cultural. Some of it seemed like I just didn't get the joke. Um, uh, but largely, I think the music was fine. It just didn't always necessarily fit what I was watching. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was It was kind of odd. It, it, it felt very, it felt nice, but I, I would yeah, say that yeah. I agree with you, though. Juan Jose Campanilla as director. We haven't talked uh, as much about uh, him. We, I don't think we've ever talked about him on the show, right? I don't think so. I really don't. Um, he hasn't done a lot of uh, English language uh, films. Um, he's He did a few in his early days in the 90s, two American films. He did The Boy Who Cried Bitch and Love Walked In, neither of which I have, had ever heard of before. Um, but then he had uh, he'd done a lot of TV. And that's the one thing, like you look at the TV work that he's done yeah. here in the States, and it's like, wow, he has really done a lot of TV. And uh, it's kind of interesting to kind of look at his career. I mean, he's a he's a uh, from Argentina who actually started studying to be an engineer. And I thought this was funny. He dropped out in 1980 after just four years at the university. He, he later remarked that the decisive factor for the decision was watching all that jazz on the very day he was going to apply for his fifth year. And he realized that that's what he wanted to do. And uh, he signed up for NYU's Tisch uh, School of the Arts and went off to New York to study film. And um, his first feature film was in 1984. It was a documentary with Eduardo Blanco, um, who has been in five of his films. And he co-wrote that with uh, Fernando Castets, who he's been working with on and off for quite a while. And um, But I think then he's kind of gone back and forth between Argentina where he's done some some features and a lot of uh, just kind of American TV and stuff. And it's what not small first... TV either. I mean, we're talking no, about yeah. you know, like st- starting with, you know, Strangers with Candy and Law and Order SVU and House and uh, Halt and Catch Fire. I mean, he is uh, he's got his name behind major, major TV properties. Yeah. Even an episode of 30 Rock. Yeah. 
I think it's funny looking back on his early stuff. He actually did uh, an episode of the CBS School Break special, which <laughs> I totally remember those from when I was a kid. Do you? Yeah. I, I don't think I don't. The School Break special was I remember Schoolhouse Rock and I remember the what was the NBC School Break equivalent. Oh, maybe it's, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. The after school after special, school special. Not the school yeah, break the school special, break yeah. special is the, for the kids who are playing hooky. They're like they come <laughs> home. Yeah, it's totally different. Uh, you don't want to hang so out with those funny. kids. The, no, no, they're rough. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> I think that yeah, I think Campanasia definitely has developed a uh, a certain uh, language with his uh, the way that he tells uh, his stories and. Um, I, he's had a lot of practice with all the TV and everything. And uh, he's done, his first film in Argentina was in 99. He did El Mismo Amor, La Misma Lluvia. And uh, with uh, Ricardo and Eduardo. And I think that, um, um, you know, he's just kind of been going from there. And then this is his second Argentine film. And then uh, he's done a couple more. And we're going to be talking about another one of those here uh, next week. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, other cast in this that that were not in the scene we we mentioned uh norma mom norma belvedere uh but we did not talk about just uh how terrific an actress she is and how well uh considered she is in argentina yeah she really is almost like a national treasure she's just been around for um, a long time and has done some really fantastic uh, performances. She was in the uh, official story, which is a film that um, that won. Uh, she won best actress at Cannes for her performance in that. And uh, actually, she acted with uh, with uh, Hector Altiero, who plays Nino. She acted with him in that film. That actually was. Uh, the first film that Argentina won for um, at the Oscars for best foreign language film. And um, uh, I mean, she's just, she's been in a lot of stuff. She's yeah. and, and the, her presence here as this, this woman with uh, Alzheimer's, I just, you know, she really, it was just, it was really touching. Yeah. Oh, she was amazing. And I think you, I mean, you just watch the, the final scene to see just how great she is, what she communicates while she's standing between these two men, uh, the the look of just kind of panic uh, and fear on her face and it, how quickly it changes to that sort of vaudeville smile. Uh, it, it's, oh my God, I can't get enough of it. I really can't get enough of it. Uh, she's yeah. just amazing. She's amazing. How did it do at uh, award season? This was received really well. Um, it was nominated for, well, it had um, 34 wins and 11 other nominations at the Argentinian Film Critics Association Awards. They're big ones down there. It had, it was, it was like, you know, a Return of the King type of thing. It had 12 nominations, which is just huge. And of that, eight wins. It won for Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor, Ricardo Darín. Best Supporting Actor, Eduardo Blanco. Best Supporting Actress, Norma Alejandro. Uh, Best New Actress, Claudia, Claudia Fontan, who played uh, Sandra, uh, Doreen's wife, or sorry, his ex-wife. Best Original Screenplay and Best Editing. And then the other four nominations were for Best Supporting Actor, um, Hector Alterio, um, who lost to Blanco. I'm, I'm kind of torn between those two. I almost feel like I would prefer seeing... Uh, Hector uh, have taken that supporting actor award. I'm not quite sure. Probably. Uh, 
Uh, and maybe it's just because there the two scenes, like one when he's talking to his son about um, the restaurant and telling him to sell it and everything. His monologue there is so touching. Yeah, uh, it just really, I it just hit me. And then when he proposes, I mean, he just has scene after scene where I just was really mesmerized by him. But I can see, you know, Eduardo is kind of the fun one and everything. I guess I can see why he'd get it. Yeah, but I'm already on the fence on Eduardo. Yeah. Just the whole part was so bad. I mean, you just can't say the same thing about Nino. He's just, he he was the, the rock, the anchor, he Andy. He really is. Yes, really is. Um, also was nominated for Best Cinematography. It lost to a film called La Cienega. Uh, best Art Direction. They lost to La Fuga, another film with Ricardo Darín that came out the same year. And Best Music um, lost to a film called Gangs from Rosario. Uh, over here at the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, but it lost to the Bosnian film No Man's Land. And this was the year that Amelie was nominated, and I still would pick Amelie over either of those. But yeah. What are you going to do? Um, but it was nice to see that of the f- six um, nominations that uh, Ricardo did receive, he did win five of them. So that made me happy. This came. This was an original property, and uh, but but it feels so much like it should be or should have been made uh, into a remake. Well, it was optioned because I mean this was popular. It was a really yeah. touching story. I think people would love to see it. it um, somebody here in the states did option it, um, but they ended up losing interest, which I would say is probably for the best, considering who they were looking at bringing on board. Who was that? Oh, Pete, you know, my favorite actor, Adam Sandler. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I just, As I can't. As who? I, <laughs> what would he be playing? I, uh, I, I, I can't imagine him as either one. I guess I can imagine him as Juan Carlos, as, uh, effectively Juan Carlos' character, but please don't make him Raphael. I don't think that Adam Sandler would do it unless he was playing the Raphael role, which means that it would probably be, you know, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Who would play the uh, the Juan Carlos role? It's probably uh, what's his name who played the animal. What's that guy's name? I'm blanking on his name. What? Who played the Rob animal? Schneider. Oh, Ra- oh, yes. Rob oh, God, no. Yeah, I totally blanked that out. You're right. <laughs> it would be Rob Schneider. Oh man, this is giving me nightmares. <laughs> it's awful. The problem with Adam oh. Sandler, if you if you'll allow me, is that. I think Adam Sandler is capable of truly great work. I just think he can't he can't channel that. Like he might stumble <laughs> into it, but that's not his natural space and he can't ever recall how did I get here? It's it's he just can't do it. Do you say that because you feel like he actually has accidentally stumbled into it before? <laughs> I feel like the the cobbler was uh, on the uh, was on the uh, he was on the verge and also what was that other one that I actually did like? Um uh, where he was, he was serious. Punch drunk love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Punch drunk love. Uh, Ugh, I don't think you like that, that one at all. No, because I don't. I, yeah, I, I know uh, PTA fans love it, but I just, I still hate it. Yeah, oh, that's, that's Adam, too bad. Adam, Adam, that's too bad. Yeah. Too bad. Well, I, I did like what uh, what uh, Campanesia said. He said they won't ruin it because the movie is already made. They'll make a different version of it. It's like a different version of Hamlet. How does Shakespeare feel about Hamlet in space? So I think that would be fun to see what they would do with it. Also, I'm a big fan of Scent of a Woman, the Italian version, the original. But also, I find some pleasant things in the American version. It's not the great experience that the Italian version was, but I don't think that it ruined my Italian experience of it. I think that's a very uh, diplomatic way to <laughs> appreciate an Adam Sandler remake of his film. <laughs> 
What about bulletproof, man? Bullet, oh, we could have been yeah. talking about bulletproof. Disneyland. <laughs> That's like the only thing I remember from that movie. Oh, I can't, I'm proud that you remember even that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I don't know what that says about me. How did it uh, do at the box office? Uh, well, Companasia's film cost $2 million to make, which is about 2.7 in today's dollars. Now, I couldn't find if that was $2 million in Argentine pesos or in U.S. dollars, but the exchange rate in 2001 was actually so close that it really shouldn't matter too much. The movie opened in Argentina on August 16th, 2001, and like Dadin's last film, was a critical and commercial success. It eventually opened in the U.S. on March 22nd, 2002, interestingly, a full month ahead of Nine Queens, Dadin's last film that we discussed last week, which... As you may remember, opened a full year uh, before this one did in Argentina. Uh, so anyway, I don't know what that says, but you got to love the U.S. release market of foreign films. Anyway, the movie did open here on six screens opposite Blade 2 and Sorority Boys, as well as the 20th anniversary re-release of E.T. It did go on to make $624, about $625,000 here in the States and about $7.9 million internationally, making a total in today's dollars of $11.7 million. That gave the film an adjusted profit per finished minute of 73000 Not quite as successful as Nine Queens, but still a success. Uh, that lines up about with how I feel about it. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> in terms of Pete's emotional uh, dollar quotient. I really ended up kind of loving this film. I think it hit me in all the right ways emotionally. And I feel like this is one that if I go back and revisit, my, my issues that I had with some of the small things with Juan Carlos are going to get smaller and smaller. Because I just feel like it was just such a, a delight to watch. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I I think there, I'm I'm probably too hard on it, and I'm probably overthinking, uh, you know, too much about the. I I have forgiven, uh, films just like this for much, much more, you know. Uh, sure. And, and yeah. so I feel like I just need to watch it again and 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 let go of some of that stuff because I I think Eduardo Blanco is really great, and I I just think I. I was too much in my head probably when I watched it. Uh, so let's let's see how it how it goes when we rank it, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you can see our list of films. You can also swipe over in your show notes. You know how it works. Tap the word flick chart. Just tap it and it'll take you right over to the our, our flick chart page for this movie where you can add it to your list. Where do we start? We're starting off with Son of the Bride or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That is a really unfortunate Block. Kicking it off with the O Brother block. Yeah. It's really unfortunate because I feel like I, I ended up, it, it ended up ranking higher just because it didn't get that block. It just didn't get that block. It would not have passed that block, uh, I don't think. I think I'm going to I'm have actually to... saying Son of the Bride here. Really? Yeah, I am. What is it that's I, pushing I, you over the edge? You hung I just over? felt like, yeah, <laughs> I'm drunk, Pete. No, I, I just feel like the emotional honesty of the story, um, just I really connected with it. And I, I really find Oh Brother completely enjoyable. It's a very delightful Coen Brothers film. Um, it's just it's it's, you know, kind of just that goofy Coen fun. But I think if I'm looking at something that's actually going to hit me more at the emotional core, it's going to be Son of the Bride. Handy, you magnificent genius. I think we, I'm going to give it to you out of just straight up maniacal curiosity. Whatever is going to happen next. Well, there you go. All right. Son of the Bride or Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Ooh, blank, it's the blank of the blank battle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's definitely Shaun of the Dead. 
Yeah, Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. Uh, Son of the Bride or Beverly Hills Cop? I will say Son of the Son Bride. Son of the Bride. Son of the Bride or Ronan? Well, see, of course, I'm going to say Ronan. I have to say Ronan. I can say nothing but Ronan. I know, and I actually feel like here I agree with you. I'm going to say oh, Ronan. Oh. <sighs> <laughs> I know, got, you, got your heart rate up a bit there. <laughs> you didn't say it? it like that. Son of the Bride or the Big Lebowski? Son of the Bride. I'll say Son of the Bride. It's interesting. I don't know what it is, because Ronan, I think I could have given the same argument that I gave with uh, with uh, O Brother and now Big Lebowski, but um, I don't know. I, I guess that just felt like, um, maybe it's just the, the dr- dramatic strength of them. I, I don't know. But anyway, Son of the Bride takes, uh, takes it here. Mm. Son of the Bride or for a few dollars more? Son of the Bride or for a few dollars more? I Andy, I can't remember which one was my favorite of the three. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, let's see. Uh, a fistful of dollars is. I, I think your favorite was for a few dollars more. Yeah. Then um, I vote. Then I vote a few dollars more. <laughs> fistful of dollars was the remake of uh, Yojimbo. Yes. And for a few few dollars more, that's the one where he puts the the stovepipe thing under his shirt and oh, the guy, you know, is, yeah. Oh, yes. No, I'm going to have to say, Andy, I'm going to say Son of the Bride. Are you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm a little torn here. I feel like I am going to say for a few dollars more. Uh, I'll give I you Son of the Bride. I'll, okay. I'll give you Son of the Bride. All right. Uh, Son of the Bride or City of God? City I'm of God. City of God. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, look at that. Son of the Bride hits 106 out of 324. 106 out of 324. That's about right. That's a pretty fair spot yeah. for it. That's a very fair spot. What did spot. this do for your for your pri- uh, your private <laughs> for the pri- <laughs> the Nelson private collection? Shh, shh don't tell anybody. <laughs> uh for for my personal flick chart, this ended up at 526 out of 3863, which is about 86%. So it's uh, it moved up pretty well for me. Had this you, is one that I, yeah. I definitely feel like I would will watch again. Because this didn't run into things like Ronan and the O Brother block, it ended up at, uh, well, it wouldn't have hit Ronan. It's much higher on my list. This ended up at 311 out of 1,001 movies for me. So uh, that puts it right around that sort of 69%, um, which... I guess that's a little bit lower than where we are, but feels pretty good. Interesting. Yeah. No, it was. This was a. This was a fun film. This is the uh, Nine Queens. I've recommended to a number of of people, and the results have come back mixed. I've been surprised uh, that people have come back saying, "Yeah, that was good. I figured it out." Like that. Yeah. That oh, somehow they figured it out, and therefore it wasn't interesting anymore. This is one that I don't feel it, it's going to be as easy to say. Eh, I figured it out because. It's not that kind of a movie. You just have to uh, kind of engage with these characters and 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 see if you build a relationship with them. And I'm I'm actually, especially after our conversation, I'm eager to to go back and and check it out again. What's uh what did it do for your letterbox rating? It stands right now at a hard four with a heart. Um, and I I think that that may be a little bit low. It it may need to be a four and a half. What about you? Yeah, mine's four and a half, four and a half and a like. I really um just. Uh, I, I feel like if it wasn't for the the one moment of um, Juan Carlos as the priest, it's like uh, it could have been a five, but I'm torn still. Again, it's one of those things where I'm like, it, it may not bother me on other later viewings. It might be fine. So I, I don't know. But four and a half, I feel like 
is a very fair score for it. I'm going to, I think, you know, obviously, according to the rules uh, that um, are emblazoned in gold in the headquarters <laughs> of the next real uh, broadcasting center, uh, it defers to the higher score, I believe, right? Uh, no, it's just an average. Well, it's an average, so four point two five. But you can't do that. Would, on it, it averages out, and you know, yeah. Well, you you round, and it ends up at four point five. That's what I mean. Like it just it, yeah. it, it defers. So I feel okay leaving mine as a four, knowing that it's going to end up at a four point five. Well, there you go. Okay, uh, where do we go from here? <laughs> you already teased it. I did. Uh, Juan Carlos, uh, uh, not Juan Carlos, uh, Juan Jose uh, Campaneja. Uh, did return to work with Ricardo Darín uh, a number of times. He worked with him four times. This was the second film they worked on together. We're skipping the third, and we're going straight to the fourth, which is the 2009 film, The Secret in Their Eyes, El Secreto en Sus Ojos. Now, I think that that one, you've seen the remake, too? Yes, I watched uh, both of them this past weekend. Hmm. Uh, I'm eager to hear how they, how they compared uh, to one another. Spoiler, I already know. <laughs> well, anyone in our Slack, any of our Patreon supporters who are over on Slack, yeah. they probably know. And uh, if you're following my, me on Letterboxd, you you know what I thought of the remake, at least. You were thrilled by it. <laughs> thrilled, I tell you. You has to see it. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. Uh, this has been a treat, Andrew. Uh, as always, uh, I'm here we are halfway through our Ricardo Darin series, and uh, we're two for two. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. I mean, we didn't even say enough of just about how good he is. But I mean, and actually, this speaks to how brilliant he is. The scene when he's reading the poem that his daughter wrote, just the way that he that it hits him. Yeah. That like said, this is an actor worth watching. Yep, absolutely it is. Uh, So we can't wait to move into the next film next week, uh, because I think, you know, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. And this week, uh, Amazon giveth a, a spread of uh, reviews that is <laughs> pretty shallow. Yeah, quite a surprise. Only 35 reviews. 35 reviews, but no one, two, or three stars. Usually there's somebody who got the wrong format or the video wouldn't play or something. (laughs) But this week, Andy, everybody is satisfied with both Amazon's performance and Ricardo Doreen's. (laughs) That is a rarity. That's amazing. true rarity. (laughs) It's amazing. Would you like to go first? Sure, I will kick it off. I am going to be reading the review from Andy Oreck, who uh, gave it four stars and says, Excellent slice of life from Buenos Aires, 2001. Son of the Bride surprised me. I was leery of a maudlin look at Alzheimer's and its impact. You know, a standard movie, movie of the week treatment. Instead, this is a great look at one family trying to survive in the economic maelstrom that is Argentina circa 2001. The tough economic conditions pressure Ricardo Darín's Rafael throughout the first third of the movie. It builds and builds to a crescendo. He spends the last hour plus trying to pick up the pieces. 
The movie never feels contrived or forced. The translation is crisp and not overwhelming. The sound quality is excellent. All of the dialogue can be heard, replete with that distinctive Argentinian accent. Although Darin is excellent here, I've got to think that this movie will long be remembered as Natalia Verbicki's stunning debut. Try keeping your eyes off this girl wherever she appears on the screen. Simply luminous. You know, that's a really good point. We should do a series on her. I was looking up uh, some other films that she's done. It's just pictures of her. And she, oh, she does not look like this. She is clearly, uh, just just judging by stills alone, moved into some fantastic character work. Yeah. And she's just, I mean, I mean she's, what, 42 now? Yeah. Uh, she's just, she brings so much power uh, in the film, and she's just she is a really a kind of a force to be reckoned yeah, with. She's in amazing. This particular film, yeah. Uh, Martini says it's a perfect balance of comedy and tragedy. With this five star review, the great acting of Alejandro Alterio and Doreen is worth the effort of watching this alone. The wonderful story, a fairly fragile mix of several storylines, is a perfect example of how tragedy and comedy must be blended in just the right mix for real theatrical power. And that is that. There you go. Thanks. Very positive reviews. Very this positive. Week. <laughs> I feel good, Andy. We should go. Uh, you know, we should go write a movie. Let's do it. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.